If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. That's page 955 of your pew Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. And if you're visiting us and I've not had the chance of meeting you, my name is John Sarver. I am one of the pastors here. John 12, beginning in verse 12. Again, that's page 955 of your pew Bibles. What do the British and Spanish empires in Europe, the Mongol Empire and the Qing Dynasty in Asia, the Abbasid and the Umayyad Caliphates in the Middle East, and the Russian Empire in, well, Russia, what do they have in common? They top the list of the largest empires in world history. This is true regarding the landmass and the population over which they ruled. Even just thinking about the two largest empires, in 1920, the British Empire spanned over one quarter of the world and ruled 20% of its population. The Mongol Empire, at its height, amassed 18% of the world's landmass. It was the largest unbroken landmass empire in world history, and it ruled over a staggering quarter of its population. These empires and dynasties, they ruled over their known worlds, they united groups of people under themselves. They amassed for themselves glories and riches. How? Shrewd and skilled leaders, no doubt. Fortuitous alliances, technological advancements and advantages, perhaps what some people would call luck. And they made war. They were skilled at war. Thinking about the Mongol Empire as one example, Historians suggest that they killed 11% of the world's population at its time. 11%. They absolutely decimated China's population. Even thinking about some modern empires, communist Russia is thought to have killed upwards of 125 million people in the 20th century. Communist China, it is suggested since 1949, has killed close to 100 million So how do the most powerful kingdoms of the world become powerful? By means of power. They crush their enemies, they suppress their challengers, they enslave their captives, they gained by means of taking. They shed blood. They ruled over their known worlds, yes. For some periods and some places, they created something like peace, sure, They received some kind of glory temporarily, and it came by means of violent bloodshed. Jesus, in our text, promises to do what so many in history strived for, but could not. He dethrones the current world ruler and kingdom. He draws all people to himself. He achieves everlasting glory and honor for himself and for his people And he does so by means of shedding blood. But unlike every king who came before him, it's his own blood. Jesus establishes his kingdom, as we'll see in the text, by means of paradox. It's death that leads to life. It's shame that leads to glory. He comes into power, we might say, by means of weakness. This is true for him and all those who would follow him. 
Jesus establishes his kingdom in an upside-down kind of way. It's a kingdom of paradox. How does Jesus establish and grow his kingdom by paradox? Keep that in mind as we read the text. If you're able, I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that he had done these things, they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they heard he had done this sign. When the, then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now some Greeks were among those who went up to worship at the festival. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and requested of him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am there, my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus responded, this voice came not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Then the crowd replied to him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus answered, The light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Jesus' kingdom, as we'll see, is one of paradox. He comes into it and grows it not by means of obvious power, but weakness. He is enthroned paradoxically in the Gospel of John on a cross, and it is the means by which his kingdom grows. Jesus' kingdom is one of paradox. I want to show you this by highlighting what kind of king Jesus is. We'll consider three characteristics of King Jesus. Jesus is a king of peace. 
Jesus is a king of life and Jesus is a king of glory. Jesus is a king of peace, Jesus is a king of life, and Jesus is a king of glory. Where's the paradox? Jesus is the king of peace. He establishes peace as an object of wrath. War is made against him by man, yes, but also in a sense we might say by God so that we might have peace with him. Jesus is the king of life. He has life in himself. He comes to give the gift of life, and yet he does so by means of his death. And Jesus is the king of glory. He is glorified by means of his public humiliation. You see, the cross is not simply one step on the way to glory in the book of John. It is an open display of the glory of God as he gives up his son to save the very people who rejected him. It is there on the cross that God displays his wisdom and his power and his holiness and his mercy. Where is the paradox? Jesus becomes the Lion of Judah as the Passover Lamb. First, Jesus is the King of Peace. We begin there in verse 12. The next day when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem... Okay, so Jesus is going to Jerusalem. Why? The same reason, sort of, that the crowds are there. It's Passover week. Israel gathers, as most of you know or are aware, they gathered to recall God's salvation to Israel in their history as God passed over their sins and freed them from their oppressors. They recall God's faithfulness as they are longing for him to act in the same way, that he might forgive them of their sins once and from all and free them from their oppressors. So a large crowd gathers because there's a large crowd in Jerusalem. First century Jewish historian Josephus noted on one particular Passover around this time, 2.7 million pilgrims made the journey to Jerusalem for Passover worship. You can imagine that Jerusalem is packed. Perhaps this one feels a little bit different than others because it feels like the time for salvation is here. It seems like the Messiah is among us. The people have heard Jesus' teaching. They've eaten his bread. They've seen his signs, the healing of the blind, the raising of the lame. Not only that, if you look at verse 17 and 18, word is spreading that he raised a man in Bethany from the grave. So the crowds gather. Don't think of bystanders casually watching a street entertainer. Okay, we're talking about thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not more. All of whom have grown up their entire lives under foreign oppression. All of whom have grown up hearing the promises of God from Scripture that he would send to them a Messiah, the true prophet, priest, and king of Israel. All of whom have grown up hearing that he would establish David's throne forever, that he would crush their enemies, that he would provide worldwide peace. These people have grown up longing for a new exodus, for an ending of their sufferings, for the day that God would pour out his spirit on his people, that he would forgive their sins once and for all. They're longing for the Messiah who will come and make all things new. And it sounds like that guy is a mile away. A crowd gathers that is as large as its expectations. Verse 13 
they took palm branches and went out to meet him, they kept shouting. They kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You can picture thousands upon thousands chanting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people are shouting Psalm 118, literally, God save us. God help us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now what's fascinating is that this hymn was not typically sung at Passover. It was sung at the Feast of Tabernacles some six months back. You might recall from John chapter 7, John chapter 7 and 8, Israel would pack into Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles once again to recall God's faithfulness to them. This is as they recalled um, his kindness to them in the wilderness generation, as he provided water for them to drink and light for them to see. Every evening they would pack into the temple. The Levitical orchestra would play Psalms 113 to 118. It's called the Hillel. These massive 60-foot Menorahs were lit, the people would dance and sing, and the climax was Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. Hosanna, that is, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Not six months back, they are crying out to God to send them the Messiah. Save us. Why are they singing it now? They found their Messiah. How do we know? They add a line at the end of verse 13 that's not found in Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. The crowds have identified Jesus at least on this day. Things will look different in six days. At least on this day they found their king. And their plans for him are clear. We know because of what they're holding. You see there at the beginning of verse 13, at the victory of the Maccabean Revolution in about 160 BC, when the Syrians were dispelled from Israel, when the land and the temple were reclaimed, the people cut down palm branches and they marched around Jerusalem in celebration. Okay, it's like a much cheaper and less noisy fireworks. Palm branches have become something of Israel's national symbol. It was printed on things like coins and it came to be associated with victory. It's a bit like they're greeting Jesus with their national flag. Okay, if you've ever seen something perhaps like an Arab Spring where there's, it feels like you're on the precipice of revolution and people are, are clinging to their flags. This is a bit what the scene is like. They believe that the time for revolution is now and they're right. They just don't understand what kind of king Jesus is. Knowing the intentions of their hearts that they are set more on political renewal and revelation than spiritual, Jesus makes some moves that would have dampened their nationalistic hopes. What does he do? Verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Then John inserts his quotation from Zechariah chapter 9 to tell us why. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. If you were to keep reading there in Zechariah 9, you would see that God promises several things to Israel at the coming of their king. First, God describes this king as righteous and victorious. He's humble, riding in on a donkey. God promises that he would end war, bring peace to the nations, rule over the world, and set the prisoners free. How does he do this? 
Zechariah 9:11 because of the blood of the covenant. How does Jesus end war and make peace? He sheds blood. But it's not the blood of his enemies, it's the blood from his body. Colossians 1:20 God made peace through his blood shed on the cross. Hebrews 13:20 the blood of the everlasting covenant that Zechariah references comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. He rides into Jerusalem, not on a horse made ready for war, but on a lowly donkey. Why? He makes peace not as he wages war against us, but as he himself became an object of wrath. It's there upon the cross that Christ bore God's wrath for all of our hostility and hatred against him so that we might have peace with God. You see, Israel did not understand that the Davidic king would also be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. This is where our peace comes from. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced because of our rebellion. That's the opposite of peace. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. All that we deserve for our hatred and treason and rivalry against the sovereign king of the cosmos, Jesus Christ himself, bore upon the tree. This is the gospel. A non-Christian friend, you may think it's strange that we believe that Jesus died for sins. You were born, as hard as this may be to hear, you were not born into relationship with God. You were born at war against God because of sin in your heart. What you deserve because of this law-breaking, because of this treason, is eternal separation from God. It's death. But God, in his mercy, became a man and lived perfectly for us and yet died for our sins that we might have peace with him, peace with each other, peace on earth. This is the gospel, and it is a gift. We would love to talk to you about this after the service. Brothers and sisters, the price that was paid for our peace is staggering. Innocent blood was shed on our account. But it's not just the blood of any man, but a king. He who comes... In the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. But not just the blood of any king, but that of God. He comes in the name of the Lord because it's his name. The acclamation King of Israel that the crowds are shouting hardly scratch at the glory that's due his name. The King of Israel is a demotion for God. Augustine put it so well that the Son of God equal to the Father, the Word through whom all things were created, that he willed to be the King of Israel was a matter of condescension, not advancement, a measure of his compassion, not augmentation of his power. For the one who is called the King of the Jews on earth is the Lord of the angels in heaven. Brothers and sisters, who paid his blood for our peace, not only the King of Israel, but the Lord of angels, our creator and God, our ruler and judge, this is the gospel. He rides in on a donkey to demonstrate the nature of his kingdom and his rule. 
He opted for something more humble and lowly like himself, a perfect precursor for what awaited him. Jesus' move throws everyone off, including his disciples, verse 16 and 17. They don't understand until after he's been glorified. Like Peter had spent all day waxing the rims on a chariot, and Jesus sits on a donkey. It's like, what? It's too paradoxical. It's too upside down to grasp initially. It took his resurrection and ascension and the outpouring of the spirit for them to be able to understand that the Messiah actually dies, that the God of life humbles himself onto the cross. And yet this is the only means by which we could have peace with God. Jesus secures peace by his blood. He's the king of peace. Jesus is also the king of life. Jesus is the king of life. It's as he dies that we live. After seeing the massive crowds flock to Jesus in verse 19, the religious leaders hyperbolically and in frustration exclaim, the whole world is going to Jesus. And then ironically in verses 20 through 22, we see Gentiles actually coming to Jesus. He really is drawing people to himself. Jesus responds with their request to see him with what is his final public sermon in the Gospel of John. Verse 23, Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour has come. We took a road trip to North Carolina last month to go to the beach. And uh, pretty much as soon as we left, our five-year-old daughter, Pavey, asked, How many more minutes? I was like, how many more minutes? I was like, how many more minutes till what? <laughs> I'm thinking like snack time, like potty break, tablets. She's like, how many more minutes till the beach? I was like, oh my gosh, minutes, not hours, minutes. It's like a 12-hour drive plus stops. It's like 800 minutes. Okay, just a few moments later. How many more minutes? <laughs> oh, and then a few more minutes later. How many, how many more minutes? It's like, baby, I'm, I'm not this skilled at math. It's in the future. It's coming. When we get there, I'll tell you. As annoying as it is, you get the anticipation of the child because the purpose of the trip is the beach. It's not tablets or potty breaks. It's the beach. As you're patiently reading through the Gospel of John, you're wondering when is Jesus' hour because this is the point. Are we there yet? We've been hearing about it. It's always been future. Jesus started his public ministry there in John chapter 2. He told his mother at the wedding in Cana, my hour has not yet come. We heard about it again in chapters 4 and 5. We saw in chapters 7 and 8, the religious leaders tried to seize him, but they couldn't. Why? His hour had not yet come. You're reading and you're wondering, how many more hours? How many more chapters? Verse 23, the hour has come. The hour for glory is here. The basic question that every gospel asks is, who is Jesus? People in Jerusalem debated this in John chapter 7. Is he a good man? Is he a rabbi? Is he a prophet? Is he a liar? Is he possibly the king? Jesus is certainly a good man and a rabbi and a prophet and a king, and he's more. This is why John starts his gospel by pulling the veil back, as it were, in the prologue. He tells us that Jesus is the eternal word of the Father. That Jesus is the means by which all things have been created. That Jesus is the light and the life of men. That Jesus possesses the same glory as and from the Father because he's a 
his, his only begotten son. Jesus, as we read in the prologue, becomes man, but he's always been God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God except the one and only son who is himself God and is at the Father's right hand. Jesus comes to reveal God and the way to him. As we'll see in the chapters to come, to see Jesus is to see the Father because to see Jesus is to see the same God. But if you saw Jesus in his earthly ministry, you wouldn't realize that you were looking at God. Right? You see a one-year-old child crying on the ground. You see a 12-year-old child learning his father's trade as he's building a chair. You see a 30-year-old rabbi teaching people. You see a Palestinian man. You don't see God. The divine glory is veiled in his humanity. The hour of glory, then, is the hour of revelation and unveiling. It's where we come to see who Jesus is, God, and the only means to God. But a bit like his humble birth, it doesn't come in the way you'd expect. Jesus is glorified. He's revealed to be who he truly is as he dies. Verse 24. Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. We see that the revelation of God's glory in Jesus Christ is bound up with his life-giving salvation, which can only come by means of his death. A seed dies to produce life. There's no life apart from death. Every time we take a trip, you know, there are a number of things you got to do around the house to get ready. One of Jess's, like, major concerns, maybe at the very top of the list, is how is our garden going to get watered? <laughs> I shouldn't call it a garden. I've seen what some of you do. We have pots in our backyard. We have pots that are full of herbs and a lot of chili peppers. We have jalapenos, serranos, sabaneros, audible ghost peppers. Uh, we have another pepper we named after my grandmother. She's a spicy lady. <laughs> I know, it comes from her house. It's one of our concerns to keep it going. We have these from year to year. Now, we buy some of these. We get a lot of these peppers from my mom. She keeps them going from season to season because she takes a handful of peppers off a plant, which you might not realize that it's killing it. She then dries and preserves the seeds and uses that to plant them for the next year. So one jalapeno plant can have maybe as many as 60 seeds in it. You only need two or three to really get a plant going. A full-grown plant can yield 100 peppers in a season. Okay, what's obvious to us, I think, is that seed gives way to life. What's probably less obvious is that first there is a death. Jesus takes what would have been incredibly intuitive, this farming principle for an agrarian society, one grain or seed dies and it produces much life. Not only that, unless one grain or seed dies, there cannot be fruit or life. Jesus takes what would have been known to them to highlight a radically hidden and unintuitive principle for the kingdom, that because of sin, death produces life. Apart from Jesus dying, we have no chance at living. The great promise that's made in the gospel of John as you read it is life. Jesus is the God of life. He comes to give the gift of life. We learned it so many of us when we were young in John 3.16 for God loved the world in this way. 
He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, that is, will not die, but have eternal life. Jesus promised it again in John 5, 25. Truly I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus promises us eternal life, blissful life, satisfying life, union with God life. And as we saw in the raising of Lazarus, Jesus promises death-defeating life. But first, he had to die. Why? Payment for sins had to be made. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It's what we owe to God is death. Jesus bore it in our place. There had to be death because of sin, and he had to rise. Why? So that his victory over death might become ours. In death, he defeated sin. By his resurrection, he defeated the grave, and he gives it to us. He rose. Brothers and sisters, the grave could not contain him any more than a bottle of the ocean. Death could not keep down the Lord of life. What looks like the seed's defeat, his death, was actually his victory. This is the paradox. That his death on the cross is actually the death of death for all the children of God. And his resurrection guarantees it. Paul gives at this in Romans chapter 5, this one act. So then as through the one trespass, that is Adam's sin, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, Jesus' death for us, there is justification leading to life for everyone. One act of obedience multiplies to life for all who believe. Jesus takes his farming principle, the death of one seed multiplies for the life of others, and he turns it into a spiritual one. Now this is true for Christ once for all, never to be repeated death for sin. Amen? This principle also holds true for all Christians that we pursue life by means of death. Verse 25, Jesus applies this more broadly to all those who would follow him. The one who loves his life will lose it. And the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Amen? The amens died down. You might not find a verse more antithetical to the spirit of our age than this one. Our culture is obsessed with love of self. It's in our movies, our books, our stories, our songs. Philosopher Charles Taylor has described our age as the age of authenticity. Basically, we believe that we're the happiest and things are morally right when we forge our own versions of ourselves or humanity unshackled by the expectations of culture and religion and law or tradition. Basically, the plot of every Disney film. Our culture encourages authenticity of self, which means the right to self-definition, even as it sets you against family and history and nature and God. To this, Jesus gives us an upside-down principle for securing true, lasting, meaningful life. The one who loves his life will lose it, and the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, what does Jesus mean? I don't think he's calling us to hate ourselves in an absolute sense. God loves us. John 3.16, he gave up his son for us. 
If you're looking at verse 25, I think what's operative in the way that we understand it is the phrase, in this world. Love of life here is the preservation of self set in antithesis to God. It is to be happy at home in the world, which James 4.4 tells us is to be at enmity with God. This kind of love of self is the love of world. The hatred of self that Jesus is talking about is the willingness to put the flesh to death as we follow Jesus through death into life. Jesus says something quite similar in Matthew 16 that maybe will help clarify what he means here. There, beginning in verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? Here's what's upside down about the kingdom of God, to really live, to really experience an abundance of joy and satisfaction and peace. It comes not by means of self-definition, but self-mortification. True life comes not as we conduct ourselves as little kings and queens, but as we submit ourselves to God's will. True life comes not as we justify every one of our desires, but as we chasten ourselves and pursue holiness. True happiness is found not as we pursue all of our interests, but also the interests of our brothers and sisters. True peace is found as we wage war against sin that would destroy. You see, we're actually choosing life when we say no to that sight to that extra drink to that slander to that stealing we're saying no to what would kill us so that we might actually live this is the paradox of life that in this world we experience more and more true life as we are willing to die and it's also why we don't have to fear death especially death for christ For the Christian, death itself is a doorway to incorruptible life. Here it's read in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives to the point of death. Again, to be clear, Jesus isn't telling us to hate ourselves in an absolute sense, but rather to be opposed to that part of self that wants nothing to do with God and everything to do with the world that is set against him. That kind of life leads to death. The kind of life that God offers us leads to life eternal. It might help you to hear it like this. Jesus is saying something like, the one who loves sin will lose his life. The one who loves comfort will lose her life. The one who can only think about pleasure today will lose their life tomorrow. But the one who fixes their eyes on heaven, the one who fights sin, who is unhappy in the world, who is willing to suffer for Jesus, the one who greets death like a guide leading them to their God, they gain eternal life. Brothers and sisters, are you pursuing worldly life or are you putting it to death? I would encourage you to think about this today. What's one sin? What's just one sin that you are working on killing right now? would encourage you to talk about it over lunch with other saints today. 
In the end, when we, quote-unquote, hate our lives in this world, we're really loving ourselves forever. We're choosing God. We're choosing life. We're choosing what's right. We're choosing what will last. We choose life. You see, we're made to live because we're creaturely imitations of God. Right? God is a boundless ocean of being and life. His kingdom is a place of life. Heaven is a place where death is a hazy memory. But here's the paradox. Eternal life is secured by the death of heaven's king. And Jesus' followers imitate him in that death before life journey. Verse 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am there, my servants also will be. You see that Jesus in his cross-bearing is setting for us a pattern. That first there is shame and then there is honor. So yes, we're forgiven of our sins and declared righteous before God by faith. And the journey from here to heaven for the Christian is marked by daily dying as we walk the way of the cross. The paradox of life in the kingdom is that death multiplies unto life. If you're not daily dying to yourself, you're not really living. If you're not killing your sin, it is killing you. First, there is death of Christ that leads to life for us, and we imitate him, in a sense, by putting to death that which is opposed to true living. Jesus immediately models for us this quote-unquote hatred of self in the world as he puts the Father's will above his own. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled. Why is Jesus' soul troubled? It's because of what awaits him. And it's not simply death on a cross at the hands of the Jews and the Romans. No, it is the prospect of being crushed under the full weight of God's wrath and fury as he substitutes himself for the sins of his people. Jesus' soul is troubled not about what could or might happen, but what will. He will suffer God's perfect and exact justice for every single one of our crimes against God. You see, Jesus' hour of glory is his hour of dread. His hour of glory is not like winning a Grammy or a Nobel Prize. For him, it meant pain. Calvin comments on this verse, the death which he underwent must therefore have been full of horror because he could not render satisfaction for us without feeling in his own experience the dreadful judgment of God. And hence we come to know more fully the enormity of sin for which the Heavenly Father exacted so dreadful a punishment for his only begotten Son. Let us therefore know that the death was not sport or amusement of Christ, but that he endured the severest torments on our account. My soul is troubled. And yet look what he says next. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus' concern is the will and the glory of God. Jesus is, we come to our last point briefly, Jesus is the king of glory. Jesus is the king of glory. What should I say, Father, save me from this hour, but that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Brothers and sisters, note that oftentimes the most comfortable thing 
the thing that we might want most and the thing that glorifies God might not be the same thing. Here what honors the father slays the son. But Jesus doesn't back away as he just explained unless a grain falls to the ground and dies it remains alone. It's his death that will lead to life for many and it's his death that will lead to glory. How? The father responds that he will glorify the son's name and he Jesus responds, I think, how for us? We see in verse 31 and 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus is about to do something that glorifies the Father, that stands as a sign of judgment on the world for all of its sin, that dethrones its current ruler, Satan, and that will exalt himself high above the earth. What is it? Verse 33. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. Again, what looks like absolute failure is actually the victory of God. Jesus gives us three things that the cross accomplishes. The cross is a judgment of the world. It stands as a sign reminding sinners what they deserve for their law-breaking. It will rise up on the last day against those who rejected their only means of salvation. The cross of Christ is where Satan was dethroned and his dominion was shrunk. Why? It is where Jesus is enthroned as king. The cross is where Jesus is exalted as God magnifies his plan of salvation and draws all people to himself. The cross is not just a sign of judgment, but the means of redemption. The paradox of glory is on full display in the cross of Jesus Christ. What looks like failure is victory. What looks like death is life. What looks like a criminal is the king. What looks like a man is also God. This is the paradox of glory. Jesus isn't simply glorified for what he did on the cross. No, the cross itself is a display of God's glory. The lamb hangs in victory. The naked man is full of divinity. The blood that flows heals our wounds. Jesus hangs not only in shame, but glory. Brothers and sisters, this is our God and our King and our salvation. The God who humbled himself to the grave. The Jews, you see, respond there in confusion about who's the Son of Man. I think they're asking more, what is the Son of Man? We've learned in the law, verse 34, that the Son of Man is to remain forever. Most Jews at this time believed that the Davidic king who would come would rule forever. And they're right. They just didn't fully understand. Their picture of the Son of Man is influenced by Daniel 7 again, which is right. There it says, Suddenly one like a Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. What they fail to recognize about the Son of Man is that this dominion and glory and kingdom is given to him because he dies as a substitute for sinners. That the reason people from every tribe and nation and language are drawn to him is because of the cross. That the reason his kingdom doesn't fade away or pass is because he took the curse upon himself to the grave and left it there. 
The Jews, no doubt, will see him high in the clouds as they expect, but not in the way that they expect. They'll see him high and lifted up when they hang him there to die. Again, the paradox of the cross, what they intended for evil, God intended for good. What they planned for shame, God did for glory. At the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus secures for us peace and life and glory. Jesus is the king of peace. He's the only means by which we can be made right with God and one another. Jesus is the king of life. His death secures for us life eternal, and he is the king of glory. The cross reveals him to be the son of God and the only means by which we can be saved. And in his mercy, verse 26, he even shares his honor with those who serve him. All that we want and hope and were made for can be found in Christ and his cross alone. Brothers and sisters, this is why the call to believe in Jesus is an urgent one. And Jesus ends his final public sermon like this. Verse 35, the light will be with you only a little longer. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become children of light. Jesus said this, then went away and hid from them. Jesus ends his final sermon again, public sermon in the book of John with an urgent call to faith in him. And then he gives an ominous sign of his departure. Non-Christian friend, believe in Jesus while you have a chance. Brothers and sisters, we ought to take the gospel to our families and friends and neighbors whilst they still have a chance to believe. If we don't believe in Jesus, we don't get eternal peace but chaos. We don't get eternal life but death. We don't share in his glory or goodness but eternal shame. Jesus offers an invitation to us into his kingdom. And unlike the kings of men, he doesn't force us in by the sword. He came humble and lowly to make peace. Believe in him while you have time. Christians rejoice that peace has been made for you by Jesus Christ through his cross. That by believing in him, you have become a child of light. What a gift it is. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at your abundant mercy and love toward us. That though we have been set in hostility against you in our minds, that though we have waged war against you in our hearts and with our deeds, that you sent your son to make peace for us by his blood. That he died that we might live. We pray that all we would do would honor and glorify our King Jesus Christ. Pray that we would especially feel an urgency to take this good news to those who are not trusting in him. Father, again, we marvel at your love. We thank you for your kindness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.